Amen. Thank you, Kevin and Valerie. Hope you will join me with an open Bible in the book of 2 Samuel as we look together at chapter 11, verses 14 to 27. 2 Samuel 11, verses 14 to 27. What we see in these verses is that this familiar tale, the classic text about scandal and adultery, takes a very, very dark turn. What was initially a lustful glance now turns into a murder plot. What happened? How do we get to this point? And we are right to be horrified by this story and by these verses. Whether we see this story in a tabloid or in the news, we should be horrified by it. But this story isn't in a tabloid or in the news. This is in the Bible. God wants us to know this story, to read this story, and to learn from this story. Why? Because the most egregious thing about what happens here is is not the lust or the adultery or the murder as egregious as those are. What we need to see is how casual David is about his sin. That instead of dealing with his sin head on, facing it, asking for forgiveness, repenting, learning from it, David tries to conceal it. And he just keeps digging and digging. And we want to say, David, stop! This isn't right! How could you do this? And this is where we need to remember that this story isn't told so that we could sit in judgment over David and say shame on him. This story is told so that we will learn from his example, so that we will be warned if this could happen to someone like David well, then this could happen to you or to me. We need to be warned in knowing that the same ingredients, the same dynamics that are at work in David's sinful heart are at work in your heart and in my heart. Be warned. But, oh, David thinks he has concocted the perfect plan, and he almost carries it out. He manages to fool everyone except for one. He fools everyone but God. God cannot be mocked. God cannot be fooled. Be warned by that. You will reap what you sow. But there's also deep encouragement here that if we will deal with our sins, God is faithful to forgive. So we're going to learn from a negative example, but remember this. God is faithful to forgive those who refuse to conceal their sinfulness and who confess their sins head on. We cannot avoid dealing with our sins. We can't put it off. We can't procrastinate. We must deal with it. And there is rich, rich forgiveness and mercy and grace for those who do. So let's read together, beginning at verse 14. And see what happens when we choose to avoid. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah, 
in it he wrote, Put Uriah out in front, where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him, so he will be struck down and die. Pausing there. Why does David want Uriah dead? Uriah is one of his faithful warriors. How do we get to this point? Well, just to recap the details, David stays back in Jerusalem while his armies go out and fight. And one day he happens to go out on the roof and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. And at that instant, he has the option to either look away or to keep looking and keep pursuing. So he asks about her. Who is she? I want to know. And he finds out that she's the daughter of one of his loyal families, and most importantly, she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, you'd think that would put a stop to it. Oh, okay, okay, she's married. Oh, no. He sins for her and commits adultery. Now, he thought he could get away with that, but inconveniently for him, she ends up being pregnant. So David, ever resourceful, has a plan. He sends for Uriah off the battlefield. Uriah comes in and he thinks that if Uriah will just go home and be with his wife, then all will be well because then people will think, oh, it's Uriah and Bathsheba's baby. No problem. No problem. And he tries everything he can to get Uriah to do that. He even gets Uriah drunk and all of it is to no avail. So now he has to try a darker scheme. Now he writes a letter and he sends it with Uriah to take back to the battlefield. Poor Uriah is carrying his own death warrant back to the battlefield. You might say, well, how could he pull that off? Wouldn't Uriah have read the letter? No, because it would have been sealed. It would have been sealed. It is intended for Joab, the general. And David's plan is that Uriah will be put out in front where the fiercest fighting is and that He will die as a casualty of war so that no one will suspect there was a murder here. There's no plot here. He just died on the battlefield. What we see here is that David tried to conceal, to cover up his sin using another sin. He committed adultery, and he thinks, maybe if I kill this man, then all will be well. Now, we sit back and we say, David, David, don't you know two wrongs don't make a right? Everybody knows that. This is ludicrous. And yet, what you and I need to remember is that this is how sin gets a foothold in your heart and in your life. Sin leads you to believe that you can justify anything that's in your self-interest. Sin trades in lies and deception, and it has from the very beginning. So we need to know this, that that when our self-interest, when our reputation is at stake, we're as prone to do what David does here, to think that somehow one sin can cancel out another and make everything right, and that we can hide it from everyone, we can fool everyone. Sin is illogical, but we fancy ourselves as as rational, 
reasonable. We would never commit a sin of passion like this, would we? Well, maybe this isn't your particular temptation. Maybe you haven't committed adultery, at least externally. Maybe you've never killed someone, at least externally. But the same ingredients, the same dynamics are at work in your heart and in my heart. Maybe it's bitterness that you're harboring towards someone. Maybe it is something you've been looking at, something you've been thinking about that you know you should not be looking at or thinking about. Maybe you think, I deserve to tell this person off. After what they did to me, after what they said to me, I deserve to say what I want to say to them, right? And you can justify it because, after all, they were in the wrong. And this is how sin works. It's okay, do it. That's what you want to do. You're justified in doing that. Do it. It's the lie. And it's what Jesus talks about in John 8, verse 44. He says, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Sin trades and lies and deceptions. Don't be deluded. Realize the illogical nature of sin. Realize that it will make you think things that seem good, that seem safe, that, that will make you see something that you know is wrong and call it right. Something bad and call it good. Realize that. But David thinks he has a perfect plan. God says, not so fast. Not so fast. You think you can get away with it, but you can't fool me. So we keep reading, verse 16. So, while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubbesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. It seems that Joab the general thought that maybe he could improve on David's plan. David's plan was just to launch an attack, and then everybody pulls out except for Uriah, and he's struck down. Joab says, well, that would be a little too obvious. People would think, why Uriah? So Joab launches an attack, but he puts them against the toughest part of the defenses. And now there are mass casualties, so that Uriah is only one among many who are struck down now. It's not just Uriah, so it's even more of a cover-up. You see, it's perfect. It's perfect. It's a perfect plot, a perfect scheme. And it's done with. But what we see is that David's guilt is multiplied exponentially. His guilt is multiplied exponentially. He just keeps 
digging. He keeps thinking he can get away. And so what do we see here? We see that David is a total hypocrite. He's a total hypocrite. Why? Because if you go back to 2 Samuel 3, he lets Joab have it when Joab murders his rival, Abner. Uh, Listen to what David says. This is 2 Samuel 3, verse 28. I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. May his blood fall on the head of Joab and on his whole family. May Joab's family never be without someone who has a running sore or leprosy or who leans on a crutch or who falls by the sword or who lacks food. When it comes to Joab, David sees so clearly, oh, that's wrong. You've murdered someone. But when it comes to protecting his own reputation and his own life, oh, it's fine. It's fine. Total hypocrisy. And again, we can say, shame on David. Shame on David. We think the same thing. We look at what other people do, and then we do the same thing. Do you see this in your own heart, in your own life? Realize your guilt as well. Deal with sin. You can't put it off. You can't procrastinate. Deal with it. Repent. Don't try to cover it up. Don't try to conceal it. And then look at how David's guilt is compounded by the collateral damage. The collateral damage. If you look at verse 17, when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Literally, some of the servants of David. The servants of David. These are David's own men who are doing their duty before the enemy. And they're slaughtered along with Uriah inside of David's wicked scheme. And David bears the responsibility. And then look at how Joab continues to trade in half-truths and lies just as his boss does. He sends an account of the battle and he says to the messenger, now, you got to be careful giving news to David because sometimes David will get pretty mad. You'll recall that at the very beginning of this book in 2 Samuel, someone comes to David to report that King Saul is dead, thinking that David would be happy about that. That's good news, right? And David is not happy and has the messenger killed. So you have to be careful bringing news to David. You never know how he might react. So he says, look, when you give him the report of the battle, David may think, what were you thinking, Joab, getting so close to the enemy's lines. Don't you know how siege works? Time is on our side. Wait them out. Why would you go so close to the wall where they can inflict damage on you? So Joab anticipates that David's going to think that. And every Israelite knows about Abimelech, the story told in Judges 9, where Israel got too close to the enemy wall and a woman threw a millstone on Abimelech and killed him. So it's the parable of why you don't get too close to the enemy walls. Everybody knows this. Why did you do it? Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. That covers all sins, right? That's what you wanted, David. I did exactly what you wanted me to do. And so he did. So he did. And so Joab is again trading. He's now complicit in this. He's wrapped up in this as well. He's lying. He's telling half-truths. He's covering up for David. He didn't, he, we're not told if he knows exactly why David wants Uriah dead, but he's wrapped up in all of it. And this is what we need to remember about sin, is that 
sin is never just one sin, right? There is collateral damage. Once you allow a particular sin to have a foothold in your life and in your heart, watch out. It spreads. This started with a a simple glance. I mean, that happens to the best of us, right? And then he wants to know who she is. Is anything wrong with that? It's news, right? I just want to know who she is. Then he sins for anything wrong with that. Oh, well, it was just a, a crime of passion. Nothing to be done about that. You see how it just escalates and escalates. It builds, it builds, it builds until it gets to this point. All because David tried to conceal it, tried to cover it up, refused to confess it and to deal with it head on. And this is what happens to you and to me. But our culture tells us that for the most part, you can do whatever you want to do as long as no one else is getting hurt. And this especially applies to sexual ethics. You can do whatever you want to do as long as no one else gets hurt. So we're told. But if someone's hurt, well, then that's wrong. And those are our cultural ethics for the most part. But you see how what seemed to be a private matter now has led to this man's murder. You say, I would never do that. I would never let things get to that point. Be careful. Be careful. Can you say with David in Psalm 51, Lord, I know my sin is always before me. I I am fully aware of it. I'm not going to try to conceal that or cover that up or hide it. God, I confess I am a sinner. I am no better than David. Do you have the humility to say that? Or will you allow your guilt to multiply exponentially as David did? It seems like a perfect plan. Again, he pulls it off. It looks good. No one needs to know. Not so fast. Verse 22. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. What we see in these verses is how David's heart was hardened against God. His heart is hardened against God. You see it in how he describes this battle. David, the chosen king of Israel, God's very own chosen king, the king through whom God chose to reveal his heart, a king after his own heart. Look at what David says. After he's told how the battle went down, he says, oh, say to to Joab, encourage him, so don't let this matter upset you. Don't let this, this matter bother you. The sword devours one as well as another. Oh, it's just, it's just fate, I guess. Just bad fortune. David, 
is taking God out of the equation and acting like that the world and the affairs of the world, circumstances, just turn on fate. It's just fatalism. The sword kills one and then another. No room for providence. No room for God's sovereign governance over the world. God's not a part of his thinking. God's not a part of the equation at all. At all. He just ignores God. And therefore, he can justify anything he wants to justify. Anything is permissible now if God is not real. Also see his flippant regard for human life. Flippant regard for human life. So what if some collateral damage happened? So what if there were some casualties? The main thing that needed to be done was done. So tell Joab, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. A flippant regard for human life. And so he then takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And now, all's well that ends well, right? Now it's clear that this is his son, and that's okay. The timeline works out. All's well that ends well. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't be troubled about any of this. It's all over. It's all over. Except it's not. Except it's not. He fools everyone but one. And you see this in verse 26. Notice how the narrator describes Bathsheba. She's not called Bathsheba. What is she called? Uriah's wife. It's all over in David's mind from his standpoint, but she is Uriah's wife. Don't forget it. Look at how she mourns for him. David's ready to move on. He doesn't care. His heart is so cold. It is so callous. It is so dull. He doesn't care, but she mourns. But notice the parallel, most importantly, between what David says to Joab in verse 25 and what we're told about God. In verse 25, it says, literally, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. Tell Joab, don't let this thing, this deed, be evil in your eyes. Overlook it, move on. But in verse 27, look at what it says. But the thing David had done, displeased the Lord, literally was evil in God's eyes. It's no big deal to David, but God knows. God cannot be mocked. God cannot be fooled. He knows. He knows. And this thing is a very big deal in God's eyes. David has just run roughshod over a person created in the image of God. He has shown a blatant disregard, a flippant disregard for human life, all because of his own reputation. So where does that leave you today? Do you think, oh, it's no big deal. I don't, I'm not guilty of anything this heinous. Not so fast. Not so fast. God knows. And God does not take any sin lightly. We need to be warned by that. But here's the encouragement. That God did not take your sin lightly when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to shed his precious blood in your place, 
to make it possible for a sinner like you, a sinner like me, to receive mercy and forgiveness and grace. Hear these words in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But, don't miss this, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, if we refuse to conceal it, if we refuse to to cover it up, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Are you going to call God a liar today and say, I'm not guilty of that? I, for one, am not. I want to say, God, your judgment is right. Your verdict is true. I am a sinner. I am just as guilty as David. Save me. And it is only because of the shed blood of Jesus that I have any, any right to the throne of grace and to his presence. What do you say today? What do you say? Use these next few moments to reflect on your heart and the condition of your life And if there is anything in your heart that you know is just pleasing to God, but that you're trying to justify, repent, confess, deal with it head on. If it's bitterness, if it's lust, whatever it is in your heart, if it's doubt, if it's anger toward God, whatever it is, deal with it in these next few moments as we enter into this time of response. I invite you to pray with me. Dear Lord, we confess that we take our sin far too lightly. And we thank you from the depths of our hearts, Lord, that you don't. That you know the deadly seriousness of sin. And that you took our sin so seriously that you sent your own dear son to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. To make atonement. To give his life. To pay the penalty of death that we deserve for our sins. And Lord, I pray that whatever we might be harboring in our hearts right now, even if no one else knows, we know that you know, we confess that. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to deal with those thoughts, deal with those transgressions. Help us to repent, help us to turn to you, and help us to receive your grace because we believe in Jesus. By the power of your Holy Spirit, your grace is available to us right now and it is available in an abundance. Lord, help us to receive it. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you now to stand as we sing our closing song, Jesus Messiah.